Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am super excited to be hosting two episodes in a row, so I'm hopeful that you are happy to hear me for two episodes in a row or two uh, in the series. So um, it is January, and for many of our seniors, it is at least a little bit of a time when you can take a breath, right? Take a deep Deep breath and say, ah, um, although if you are sort of thinking about, geez, what can I do now? There are some shows in the archives, in the very recent archives around that, things that you can do since you've submitted your applications uh, and things like that. So uh, if you're curious, take a listen. Anyway, um, we're going to be answering your questions this week. So the bulk of the show is going to be devoted to that. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about planning a career in the performing arts and sort of trying to avoid the starving artist scenario. And I'm very excited to welcome my colleague, Sai Samboon. He works here with me at College Coach, but we also work together in admissions at Penn. And Sai is particularly uh, informed about this because he earned his Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and Dance at Franklin and Marshall and a Master of Fine Arts in Dance at the Ohio State University. So <laughs> I think he is well positioned to answer these or to talk to me about these kinds of things. Hi, Cy. Hello, Beth. Hello to you and Happy New Year to everyone. Yeah, thanks. It's it's already, the, the new year feels like it's far in the distance at this point, but uh, I'm still <laughs> struggling to not write 2018, but we are into 2019. And I think my first question for you is, we talk about avoiding the starving artist scenario. And when, I think that that might mean different things to different people. So what do you think of when you think of the term starving artist? And by the way, was this something that your parents said to you when you decided you wanted to major in the arts? Were they sort of concerned about the whole starving artist thing? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, they were very concerned and they wanted to make sure that I had enough of professional experience in other areas. So I actually had a pretty non-traditional experience I guess, work journey. You know, I was in admissions with you at the University of Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania and then decided uh, at 26 to go to graduate school. So then I actually switched careers and moved to New York City and performed as a dancer, as an actor, um, with my first job at 28. But I was very lucky. And frankly, I had the privilege of having had those years of working in admissions, you know, where mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of artists don't have that because they go straight from school or in some rare instances, high school, straight for the mm-hmm. performing arts. So the idea of a starving artist for me, and I think for a lot of people, is one who pursues the arts with a fiery passion at all costs, right? <laughs> right. So they're... Yep. They're, they're painting, they're a uh, sculptor, they're dancing, they're acting, they're living with five roommates, they're eating instant ramen, they're working five different jobs, and there's very little financial security, but they're doing it for the dream. Um, right. So, you know, that's, that's the idea of the starving artist, for sure. Yes, absolutely. So, in your opinion, what are the realistic job opportunities for a student who wants to go into the arts? Mm-hmm. And maybe also yeah. wants to avoid the starving artist thing. Absolutely. So <clears throat> there is a lot of demand and very little supply, right? So the truth is yep. for artists is there are just really few jobs. Um, and there are thousands of artists that graduate and go on into the world, whether it is in music or theater and dance. And there are few jobs because you have to audition, you know, many, many times a week. You have to take classes. You have to get to know people. You have to network. You have to produce work. And so the reality is, it, is that it is an unforgiving and very heartless career. You have to push yourself mentally and physically. But I think it's also important to make smart choices. So whether you are a painter trying to be chosen for exhibitions or um, a dancer auditioning for choreographers and shows, you have to be able to find work and opportunities that allow you to be self-sustainable. 
So in my experience, I've seen artists really push themselves very hard. And if you're not, um, if you don't have any other experience outside of the arts, that's when it becomes a challenging uh, life journey, right? Whereas how you can avoid it is, let's say you are a dancer or an actor, you have a very strong awareness of your body. So perhaps Mm -hmm. when you're in school, you know, uh, or in college, you can get your personal training certification, or you can get yoga certified or learn how to teach Pilates. And these are things that you can take with you after school to give yourself a sustainable career while you're still auditioning and performing. So there are many opportunities for students to do that when they go to college to study the arts, whether it's um, a double major or maybe it's a minor in something. I have mm-hmm. colleagues in the city, in Manhattan now, who are, um, you know, sculptors, but they also code because they, they learned how to code when they were in college. So I think that by giving yourself this awareness that, hey, it's going to be a very challenging career, what are some things that I can learn now while I'm in school to help me prepare for that, that would be what I would call a very smart choice. Well, and what's also interesting to me about what the things that you were just talking about, the careers or the um, additional skills that you were just talking about is that they are all uh, are flexible, right? You can code mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. You can teach mm-hmm. fitness classes early in the morning or later mm-hmm. in the evening, right? And, and that frees mm-hmm. up your day when things like auditions are happening. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're teaching fitness later in the evening and you get cast in a show, that's going to conflict. But then again, if you get cast in a show, you could probably put that stuff on hold for a little bit because now you're mm-hmm. working doing the thing that you love. Um, I'm just curious if there are other, um, other studies that you feel would lead to similar kind of flexibility I, and bookkeeping comes to mind. I remember my mm-hmm. father, I was not pursuing a career in the arts um, to anyone who knows me. That would be a funny idea. But um, <laughs> I remember my father saying, you should take a class in bookkeeping because his own mother, mm-hmm. who unexpectedly became a single mother, uh, had done bookkeeping and she could do that and still be able to look after my dad. Um, and I never mm-hmm. did take any bookkeeping classes, but that stuck with me as something that you could often do on your own time. And I'm just curious mm-hmm. if there are other things that you've thought about that would be kind of equally worthy. Absolutely. So in addition to what we talked about, right, with personal training and um, yoga and Pilates or becoming a CrossFit coach, for example, there's absolutely mm-hmm. other things that are a bit more uh, sedentary, right? So whether it's bookkeeping, mm-hmm. you're learning accounting, you're learning different skills like Excel or PowerPoint or tutoring, whether it's tutoring kids in math or in foreign languages. These are other things that artists can learn while they're still pursuing their craft so that they're able to find jobs that, as you said beautifully, Beth, are very transferable and are very flexible, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and th- the wonderful thing about th- these fields, these sort of supplementary fields, is they want to hire performers because we are a very personable, you know, enthusiastic, yep. energetic bunch of people. And so they understand that, hey, you know, I've been working with you, uh, bookkeeping for perhaps a startup for six months, but I've just booked a show. I can do this remotely while I'm traveling, you know? So a lot of companies are actually very amenable to this as well. Right, right. Because performers, like you said, very personable. I mean, one of the things that I think is so um, wonderful about your background is that we do a lot of presenting here at College Coach, and you are really good at that because... That's your natural environment, right? Out on the stage, there's probably no place that you'd rather be. And um, that is a lovely skill set and not everyone has it. And it is something that we do look for. uh, And the ability to connect with people, I mean, that's a skill set that gets you anywhere. Now, of course, your milieu is to be on the stage connecting with your audience, whereas maybe if you're a sculptor, you might be a little bit more someone who who keeps to themselves, but you're also able Mm -hmm. to work on your own for long, sustained periods of time without a lot of oversight, and that can be really valuable in certain professions as well. Absolutely. It's a very transferable skill, how to manage your own time and how to multitask. Like I said earlier, the idea of a starving artist is one that has many, many jobs, 
you know? So, I mean, when I first moved to New York City, I was teaching, I was training, I was reading applications for a university, I was modeling. I mean, I had a schedule that looked like a rainbow, you know, because everything was <laughs> right. color-coded. So that's an, an incredible transferable skill that artists have, um, is to be able to jump back and forth from different experiences and, and really give as much of themselves as possible, you know, when they're not performing or auditioning. Right, right, absolutely. So this leads to my next question for you, which is, do you think, given the dearth of opportunities that are out there and what might be kind of a challenging life, obviously what you've just described for some people probably is terrifying, which means, by the way, you probably shouldn't go into the arts if that's terrifying to you. Um, (laughs) But do you think the arts degree is worth it? I mean, you have two degrees, so you even had time between your undergrad and grad to really think about whether it was worth it. Clearly, you decided Mm -hmm. that it was worth it to get your graduate um, degree. But Mm -hmm. do you ever regret it? Do you, and and probably more importantly for our listeners, um, is it something that you would and this is probably a leading quote, would you discourage it? Or what do you think about the value of this degree? Absolutely. And that's a great question because I feel like I I speak with families about this all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. is it worth it? Is it worth spending the money? Is it worth spending the time and effort? I think that an art education is worth it. Now, Mm -hmm. there are rare instances where students will skip the actual bachelors and go straight into the workforce. And there are plenty of dancers, actors, musicians, whatever, that have succeeded in that way. But I do think it's important to have that bachelor's degree. Now, you can still go to college for a bachelor's degree and not major in the arts and still become an artist. There's many, many people who do that, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think that an education overall is worth it because depending on the field, your degree can make a difference as an artist. Some, let's say, dance companies will only look at students who have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. You know, some um, choreographers really don't care. They just want to see how you move and perform in an audition space. But some artists also decide to forego uh, college altogether, which I believe has more cons than pros. Because if you decide at any point to transition into another career, that bachelor's degree will make a difference. I mean, there's plenty of data supporting that. You know, that it is a requirement for many different types of jobs, whether it's teaching or administrative positions. So I do think that it is worth it. But again, it's about balancing one's passion with other things that are also realistic. Right. And I will share a personal story. So my former husband studied uh, acting in college and went on to pursue his graduate, so a master's program in acting and left like two credits shy of getting his degree, his graduate degree. And as a result of that decision, really the opportunities to do things like teach, so in a private school setting or something like that, um, really weren't available to him because he didn't have that graduate degree and it was something that these private schools were looking for. And I don't think he really Mm -hmm. wanted to do that, but if he had wanted to, it wouldn't have been an option. So um, Mm -hmm. I think when when you think about... And no one wants to think about life if I don't make it in the Mm -hmm. arts, but I'm sure our parent listeners are thinking, well, you need to think about what it is that happens Mm -hmm. after life in the arts if it doesn't work out. Um, Mm -hmm. I can only imagine that these degrees would be very important for things like that. And, for example, Mm -hmm. for you working at a place like Penn, you could never have gotten hired in the admissions office if you hadn't earned your bachelor's degree from Franklin and Marshall. Mm -hmm. That just wouldn't – that would have been a no-go, Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, going along with that, like I have my master of fine arts in dance. I'm not Mm -hmm. currently interested in teaching um, at a university or a private school or a public school. But if I wanted to, I have the qualifications for that. So, you know, there is value in that. And I was very lucky in that I was a full scholarship student. So, you know, going with that, if there are opportunities for scholarships, for financial aid, then definitely take advantage of that, you know, because the financial return can be very little (laughs) for people wanting to become artists. Right, absolutely. Any um, advice um, as we wrap this up around what students can do now or while they're in college Mm -hmm. um, to avoid the whole starving artist scenario or to set themselves up in the best way possible for this career? Absolutely. 
Um, I think that for artists, it's important that we know that we have amazing transferable skills. So explore that while you're in high school. Explore that should you decide to study the arts in college. There are so many other things that you can do with your skills that will help you in the future. So whether that's designing for costumes or becoming um, a certified uh, trainer or a coach, um, learning bookkeeping, as you said, Beth, all these mm-hmm. things are there that you can take advantage of that will help you be an even better artist in the future because you will have that sustainability and that consistency for you to be able to pursue your career in wherever it is in the arts. So now is the time to do that um, so that you can be armed with these experiences before you head off into the world. Right. I think that's excellent advice, Sai. Thank you so much for- for joining us and sharing your own personal experiences and also all the insight you've gained as a result of those experiences. Thank you very much for having me. All right, everybody. When we come back, because we're going to take a short break, we are answering your questions, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are getting right into your questions. And for those of you who are saying, uh, I have questions. How come my questions aren't going to be answered today? Well, that's because you didn't send them to us. Uh, so send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. All right. Very happy to welcome my frequent collaborator uh, on the listener Q&A, Kathy Ruby, who's a former financial aid officer at St. Olaf and works here with me at College Coach. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. Happy New Year. Yeah, same to you. We are going to jump right into um, a question for you, if I can get there on my computer. I don't really know what the problem is here today. Um, Okay, this question comes to us from Steve, who asks, when do you find out from the FAFSA how much aid you're getting? My son has gotten some merit scholarships from colleges, but we haven't heard anything else. Oh, that's a that's a really good question, and especially at this time of year, because I think some families may feel like they're they're in limbo, waiting to hear about the details of what college is going to cost. So let's tear apart that question. The first part of it: When do you find out from the FAFSA how much you're getting? Um, you actually are not going to find out from the FAFSA. You're going to find out from the colleges themselves, which is a little confusing, but that's that's basically how it works. When you complete the FAFSA, you know, and you probably, many people filled it out back in October for the 1920 school year. When you complete the FAFSA and you push submit, um, that's kind of when you hear from the FAFSA. Because what comes back mm-hmm. on the confirmation page is uh, your expected family contribution. And then the Department of Education has some verbiage about what kind of federal financial aid you're going to qualify for. It will usually say... 
um, you know, either that you qualify for a Pell Grant or you don't, and then everybody qualifies for a federal direct student loan. So there's sort of an initial indication that you're going to be eligible for federal aid, either a grant and a loan or just a loan. Um, But then the school takes the FAFSA information. Each school takes the FAFSA information that you've sent to them, and then they decide how much you're going to be offered. They're sort of the last word on how much federal aid you're going to get. They'll look to see if you're eligible for state aid, um, and then they'll look at their institutional dollars as well to see whether they can give you institutional need-based grants and scholarships, maybe in addition to the merit scholarships that your son has received. So you actually will hear from the from the school, and every school does it in a different way. Many of them are online these days, um, but they'll send an email to your student, and they'll say, it'll be from the financial aid office, and it'll say, your financial aid award is ready to be viewed. Some colleges will mail a packet home, too, because they like you to have something in writing to look at, and they want to make sure parents see the information. Um, But uh, every school will also have an online process as well. And then that financial aid award will actually say, you know, we've reviewed the results of your FAFSA, um, and here's what we cost, and here's the total amount of aid that you're going to get. And it will include federal loans and maybe a federal grant, although most middle-income families don't qualify for that. Got it. So in short, the FAFSA is done with you, but you're going to hear from the colleges next. You're just using that as a vehicle to get them information. Okay. Exactly. All right. right. So your first question is from Joanne, and it, it asks, my daughter is a junior, or she asks, my daughter is a junior. When should she start thinking about the SAT or ACT? Should she do prep for those tests? Well, one of the things I particularly like about this question is that Joanne asks SAT or ACT, and I that's something that I want to highlight here, which is that, and we talk, we've talked about this on the show in the past, but um, it's really about finding the test that best suits your student. Colleges don't have a preference for one over the other, so the first thing that I would do would be to reach out to a test prep organization. Um, Most of them will do a free diagnostic where you can take both tests and then see which one you do better on or maybe that you feel better about. Although I would caution, um, and because I just had it happen this past year where a student did much better on the diagnostic for the ACT than on the SAT, or I shouldn't say much better, but did better, but then decided Mm -hmm. that she liked the SAT better and took the SAT a few times and was not able to come even close to where she needed to be in terms of her the colleges she was aspiring to, and so at a very late date decided to prep for and take the ACT and did significantly better on the ACT. And um, I wish that she would have started with the ACT. So while it's important to sort of that the student feel comfortable with the test that they're taking, um, if one diagnostic shows that clearly that is a better test for you, I highly encourage you to go with that test. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of when to start thinking about it, now for sure, um, it might even be, it's a little on the late side, not really, but um, I'm putting on my admissions hat. I live, eat and breathe this stuff <laughs> all the time. So for me, I'm like, oh my goodness, you haven't started thinking about it yet. But the reality is that you, there's lots of time. Um, for the student who's ready, it's great to take the SAT for the first time in January or the ACT for the first time in February. And the reason that I recommend that is mostly because most students need to take it more than once. So it's rare that you're going to take it one once and be done with it. Um, so if you start a little bit earlier in the junior year, it makes it more likely that you might complete your testing, even if you're going to take it more than once by the end of your junior year. And if you're able to do that, it also makes the process of determining your college list and where you're going to be competitive easier and you're able to do that over the summer sometimes and you're not having to worry about in addition to difficult classes in your senior year working on your applications in your senior year you don't also have to add on to it doing more standardized testing so Mm -hmm. the earlier you start thinking about it in my opinion the better although these tests are designed for second semester juniors so I'm not a big fan of starting to take these tests much earlier than the second half of junior year because most kids aren't ready for it. And so I'm not Mm -hmm. really an advocate of that. Okay, so 
the third part of the question or the second part of the question is, should she do prep for these tests? And um, my advice is yes. And the reason that I'm suggesting that students prep for these tests is because most kids prep for these tests or many students prep for these tests. I shouldn't say most because probably most don't, but certainly all the students I talk to do. And um, there are enough students who are prepping for this test that I feel it's a disadvantage if you're not prepping for this test. The other thing, which is interesting, it's been in the news recently where a young woman had her scores sort of canceled because the college board accused her of cheating because her score Mm -hmm. went up 300 points from the first time she took it. My guess is that she took that test cold with no prep and then she went and did prep and then as a result, her scores went way up and um, like it or not, a lot of times if the scores go up too much, the test prep organizations can raise their eyebrows. And so I don't recommend taking the test at all cold. Um, Doing Mm -hmm. some type of prep prior to taking the test is, I think, important. Um, And while the best test prep is certainly the kind that you do one-on-one with the tutor who knows the test, so isn't just really great in English, but also understands how those sections work on the ACT or on the SAT, uh, and in addition to that can also help your student or help you as a student apply that, that insight and knowledge when you are taking the test. So it's not just about prepping for the content. It is also about prepping for strategy, test-taking strategy, when to guess how to eliminate options, how to manage your time, right? All of those things are really important. Um, And any good test prep will cover that. I think a class is is fine, but often not super inexpensive. And the challenge with a class is that you have to go at the same speed that the rest of the class is going at. But if your Mm -hmm. school offers a class, for free, absolutely, I would take it. Um, Khan Academy has resources to prep for the SAT, uh, and those are free. I think that is a wonderful opportunity, especially if you find that test prep is really just not in your um, budget. Um, There are books out there. Princeton Review has a book. I remember using that when I was um, a high school student. Um, I will add that it's a rare student. There are apps that you can use. It's a rare student who does a great job of prepping on their own. So, you know, again, the gold standard, and if you can swing it, would be to work with a tutor one-on-one, someone who's going to create a plan and help your student to stick to it. Um, But so now is the time to be thinking about it. And yes, please do some prep for these tests. (laughs) All All right. You think it should be a short answer, but it's not a short answer. It's, it's not, never a short never. answer with me. Because <laughs> it always depends, too. <laughs> exactly. It does. It does. All right. Janice has a question for us. My son has been accepted to a few colleges. When do we start applying for loans? All right. Another timely question, because this time of year, some colleges are sending out acceptances. Others are not. Um, And so then the next question most parents have is, okay, how am I going to figure this out? How am I going to pay for it? So the first thing is to to first make sure that you've heard from the financial aid office at the school. So if you filled out a FAFSA, um, make sure you've actually heard something from the school about what it's going to cost and what what kind of money they're giving you. Um, And then in terms of when you should actually start applying for loans, it is too soon. Um, It's not too soon to start researching student loans and parent loans and understanding understanding what's out there and what might work for your family and what's affordable for your family, how much you're willing to borrow. All of that research is great to be doing right now, but to actually apply for loans, you should wait um, until usually June or July is an appropriate time to do it. And the reason is um, when you apply for loans, so there's a federal student loan that students will fill out a promissory note and they'll uh, do what's called an online entrance counseling session. And that happens, again, early summer. Um, But then for parent loans and for private student loans where a parent might be co-signing, there's a credit check involved in those loans. And so when you apply for loans... Uh, you tell the lender or whoever it is, whether it's a private lender or the government, you're telling them what school your child is attending. And then the college has to certify the loan to say, yes, this person is going to attend the college. This is what it costs. Yes, they're eligible for this loan. 
And so the issue is most colleges don't start certifying uh, student and parent loans until early summer, after they've, you know, after May 1st and they've figured out who their class is, um, they're, they're done processing first-year awards and, and hopefully returning student awards, and then they're busy certifying loans. And so if you apply for a loan now in January, the lender will do a credit check on you to make sure you're eligible, and the problem is that credit check will expire by the time the school gets around to, to certifying the loan. Mm-hmm. So you actually want to wait until May or June before you actually apply for loans. Now, you should check out your credit, make sure you have okay credit, make sure you understand what your credit score is. Um, For the federal parent loan, your credit score doesn't matter. You just have to have no bad credit, uh, no adverse credit. Um, But you can start doing all the prep work, lots of research, certainly visit our blog. We've got lots of information out there about different financing options. Um, So don't apply until the early summer, but you can be doing research now. All right. Great advice. I think we have time for one more question before we go to break. All right. Uh, So here's from Janine. My son is a freshman. I've been pushing for him to get involved at school, but he wants to get a job at McDonald's. Um, I think he should focus on school. What do admissions officers prefer? Haha. Well, if you have been a longtime listener of this show, and by the way, we've been on for four years, so um, we've probably talked about this more than once. You might remember or know already that there is no one thing that admissions officers prefer and that they um, do want to see students involved in things outside of the classroom and that what those things are really depends on what is of interest to the student. So I think this question is particularly timely as my son is a freshman and he has some friends who are lovely young men, but who don't seem to be doing much of anything. And um, because my son is my son, one of the things that we were very clear on, crystal clear on, he would say, before he um, started in high school was that he would be doing something every athletic season. So by that I meant not that he had to play a sport, he didn't have to play any sports if he didn't want to, but that he would be doing something in the fall, in the winter, and in the spring. Um, Something significant where he was devoting a a significant amount of time to it. In his Mm -hmm. case, it's ended up being sports. So that's great. He really enjoys it, um, which is on some level a little surprising to me. Um, But it's been (laughs) wonderful to see him get involved and and do those things. Um, For some of his friends, they haven't really found that thing yet. And so if that really describes your student, but they are interested in the idea of getting a job, by all means, I would support it. Unless there is some other concern, maybe it's that the hours are not great um, or that the, the McDonald's is so far from home that it would be tough for you to get him to the job. But mm-hmm. I have to say, there is just as much value in a job as there is in playing football or in um, joining Model UN. It is really about what is right for the student. Um, I will say that if the only thing the student is going to do is work at McDonald's, so they're not going to join a couple of other clubs at school or do anything other than that job, then they better be working 15 to 20 hours a week because... Mm-hmm. You know, that is really the the students actually do end up having a decent amount of time on their hands. And, yes, they have to do schoolwork and that's important. But um, you could get 15 to 20 hours in of extracurricular activities around schoolwork. Um, You may not have quite the lackadaisical uh, life that you as a parent might have had back in the day. And maybe you feel like that's too much and that's a choice for your family. But um, I do think that that's not unrealistic to imagine that a student could work that many hours. Again, if it's the only thing that the student is going to do. So um, benefits of a job, you are able to get yourself there on time. You're able to work with people to whom you are not related. You get more comfortable around adults. Um, you feel a significant sense of responsibility. You earn money. You know, what could be wrong with earning <laughs> yeah. money? I mean, it may not be a ton of money, but you're earning money. Um, and I think people mistakenly feel like colleges look at a job and think, oh, whatever, a job. But I will tell you, so few students actually worked that for me, yeah. it was kind of a breath of fresh air, like, oh, a job. Um 
And I remember even when I was um, a high school student, certainly some of my friends had jobs in the summer, but I actually wrote one of my short answer essays about what it was like to be working at Friendly's. That was where I was when I was writing my (laughs) essays while my friends were kind of at the beach all summer long and how I wished I was on the beach, but there was, I, I had taken quite a bit of value out of um, out of that job at Friendly's. And I, maybe that was a precursor to my doing this work, but I somehow seem to know that that might be something the colleges would want to hear about. So in short, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the job at McDonald's. And if they're not doing anything else, then by all means, at least jump at the chance for them to do something that they've expressed interest in. Um, I do think that's really important. And, uh, and right. there is a scholarship available at McDonald's, by the Interesting. way. Yeah. Oh, see, support. so there you go. Students who work there for a certain period of time, you have to pay your dues, but you can become eligible for some scholarship money. So, so you get a job, you earn money, you are doing something, and you might actually get money, free money, to help you with college. Um, exactly. That sounds pretty awesome to me. Uh, all right, Kathy, hold that thought. I have a, I have a financial aid question for you, or a finance question, when we come back. But we're going to take a short break, and then we'll get back to it. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back and we're going to jump right into your questions. And I have my colleague, Kathy uh, Ruby here. And Kathy, Bruce sends us a question and Bruce would like to know, why do I need to list stock options if I can't access them until after my student graduates? Oh, that's a question we hear quite a bit. And trust me, we have, we have researched this question, researched, researched the heck out of this question because we do get it <laughs> frequently from parents as they're working on filling out these forms. Um, and so let me just clarify, So, um, because when you read the instructions, so remember there are two financial aid forms, um, one that everybody fills out, the FAFSA form, um, and then the CSS profile form, which is only required by a couple hundred colleges, mostly private, mostly more selective. Um, so on the FAFSA, when you read the instructions about what assets to include, um, the the instructions are actually a little bit vague. They, they reference stock options, um, but they don't distinguish between vested and unvested stock options. Uh, on the CSS profile, they actually distinguish between the two in the frequently asked questions, and they say outright that you must report both vested and unvested stock options. Um, on the FAFSA, even though the instructions are vague, we have followed up with the Department of Education and have gotten clarification that, yes, they do intend that you include vested and unvested stock options. So what are the difference? What's the difference? 
So, so vested options, stock options, that seems fairly obvious that they should be reported, right? Vested options mm-hmm. are options that you own and that you can cash in any time. But I think right. Bruce is asking about unvested stock options. So these are awards, stock awards that are given to you, and you can't access them until you've stayed with your employer for a certain period of time, whatever that might be. And so Bruce is asking, why do I have to report that? It's not something that I have access to right away. Um, and the reason is because it is an asset for you. It is something that will be worth something to you in the future. Um, and you, if you think about the principles behind need analysis and colleges figuring out, okay, what's this family's financial strength versus another family, Bruce is better off because he has these stock options, even though they're not vested yet. So the idea is, even if he might need to borrow now because he doesn't have access to those options, someday in the future when they do vest, he'll be able to cash them in and pay off those loans that he borrowed to finance education. So that's why they're included. Um, And just another argument for it. Um, that one of my colleagues likes to, to, to use is simply to ask a parent, okay, you're telling me those options aren't worth anything. Well, why don't you just give them to me then? <laughs> if they're not worth anything. <laughs> right. right? So they really yep. are an asset and they have to be reported. So there guess, you go. The, yeah. And the one challenge I guess I could see would be if you have options for a company that maybe is a startup and so it might appear that they're worth a lot but they're that it could right. be very risky or you know for whatever reason the the company in which you have options tanks and the strike price is higher than what the yes. stock is currently trading for and then not only there I mean you don't lose money there but you just don't there is no money right right but, and then you could then you could argue that you could um, well and I, I would say too that you could you can always appeal to a financial aid office if, well, so if the company tanks and suddenly you've mm-hmm. reported this asset that you thought was worth something and now it's not. That's certainly a legitimate appeal. The other would be, you know, let's say you fill out the FAFSA, you report the value of the options, and then you actually do leave the company. Um, you certainly could reach out to the financial aid office to say, can we change that number, please? Um, right. And remember, yeah. overall, two assets, again, are only assess- assessed at that 3 to 6% rate for parent-owned assets. So, you know, they're usually not making a huge difference in the formula anyway. Right. Always, always, always income is the biggest influence income on the formula. Income is the big thing. Yeah. Right. Look, I, I learn a few things every once in a while, and that's one that seems to have <laughs> we've stuck. Got, we've got you. So. <laughs> got you covered on that one. <laughs> All right. All right. You I've got, got something one for now. Me. So David is asking, how should we handle a deferral specifically to MIT and University of Chicago? Okay. Um, Well, the first thing I would say is that we did a show on December 13th that aired on December 13th um, that is in the very recent archive, so you don't have to go too far to search for it, where we did talk about deferrals and how to handle those. Uh, So I'm not going to get too in-depth into it because I do love if people go and access the archives, Um, and we did a whole segment on it. But basically, for these schools, I think the first thing to do is, of course, to and, and we're past that now, so hopefully your students submitted all of the other applications and took the same care and attention with those as he or she <laughs> did with MIT and University of Chicago. Um, but now the way to follow up with MIT and University of Chicago would be with um, kind of an update letter, a, a love letter, if you will, although it shouldn't be sort of, I love you so much, please accept me. We're not begging here, <laughs> even if it feels like you want to. Um, it really should be kind of a, hey, I, I received your decision. I am excited to still be in the running. And here are some things that I've been doing since I submitted that original application. And by the way, I am still extraordinarily interested in attending. And if between MIT and University of Chicago, your child has a favorite, I might wrap the letter up by saying, if I am admitted in regular decision, I will attend. Now, mm-hmm. you, you really only should say that if you actually believe that. But then also, if um, you know, if finances are not a concern and you don't have to compare packages, and the you know, then maybe that's not true. But if you if you can say that 
and 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 genuinely mean it. Um, and and let's be honest, I, I don't know that you can't say it. And if it, I mean, the fact is you're not bound. So while I don't ever encourage lying, um, I would say that you certainly could say, well, I think this is where I would go. And if the finance piece works out, this is where I would go. Then I would say that, hey, if you admit me, I would, I, my plan is to attend. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's what I would do. I would say um, a couple of key elements to this letter. It should not be longer than a page in a perfect world. Maybe it's three paragraphs. If you have that much to share, maybe it's a short opening, a short closing, and then a relatively brief um, paragraph that's updating on them on things that you've done since submitting your application. Uh, it shouldn't be really long. You shouldn't be rehashing parts of the application that you've already explained in detail. The goal is really to just kind of provide an update and more to say, hey, I know you deferred me. I haven't forgotten about you, and I'm mm-hmm. still hopeful that this is going to happen for me. But again, I would also recommend uh, take a listen to the show that we did on December 13th, um, and you can learn more. Um, okay. Uh, Anthony asks us, the, C- the CSS profile form is a bear. That's the one we were just talking about. <laughs> Um, I really don't want to do this if I don't have to. <laughs> Can't I just wait to see if my daughter is accepted there or not? <laughs> That's a great question. And first, Anthony, I, I want to acknowledge your feelings. Uh, the CSS profile is certainly a bear. Um, they ask questions about every aspect of your financial situation. So I do understand your reluctance to fill it out. Um, and But unfortunately, um, I think it's not a good idea to wait to hear if your daughter is accepted uh, to decide whether or not to do the form. Uh, So if you look at the colleges who require the CSS profile, and all colleges will have deadlines by which they want you to fill out the financial aid forms, whether it's just the FAFSA or the FAFSA and the CSS profile. Sometimes they'll want you to upload copies of taxes. Um, So you want to definitely check out the financial aid office website. Um, at each college your daughter is applying to to find out what their institutional deadline is to be considered for financial aid and what's required for that. Now, I'm hoping that your daughter is applying regular decisions somewhere where the deadline for admission might be January 1st or January 15th, and then the CSS profile deadline is usually either in January or maybe February 1st, so you still have time to get it done to meet the deadline. Um, It's very important to meet the deadline because that's how you get full consideration for financial aid. So if you wait to hear whether she's accepted and you wait until March or April to fill it out, you have missed their deadline and you're not going to get full consideration. And and in fact, at some colleges, you might not be considered at all. Um, And basically, just to to explain a little bit why that happens that way, um, the reason is simply just from a processing perspective for the financial aid office. If they waited and said, oh, you don't have to fill out the form until your, your child is accepted, um, they wouldn't have enough time to turn around and get you, you and everyone else an award by the time your, your daughter has to make a decision on May 1st. So it's simply that they need you to do it by that deadline um, from a processing perspective so that, because what's happening in the background here is the admissions office is telling the financial aid office already Um, You know, they're starting to tell them, okay, here's a group of kids we were pretty sure we're going to admit. You can start working on their awards. And then as the spring progresses, um, they're communicating with the financial aid office, the admissions offices, so that once your daughter is accepted, then you get a financial aid award pretty quickly, sometimes even with the offer of admission. So it's it's just necessary and, and you really need to pay attention to those deadlines or you may not get full consideration. So there you go, Anthony. No, you got to fill it go. out. Now you know what you have to do this weekend. Fun. Yes. Fun All is right. right. Um, th- okay, so Natalie is asking, um, my son was just named a National Merit Finalist. His top choice is Penn, but he also has a few other highly selective schools on his list. Since he applied ED to Penn, what's the best way to let them know about this new honor before they make their decision? And what's the best way to notify schools where he's already applied about this change? Okay, so I'm guessing Natalie sent this question um, a little while ago, given that ED has come and gone and her student probably already has his decision from Penn. Um, mm-hmm. So congratulations on being named a National Merit Finalist. It's it's an honor and it's 
people. And then here comes the flip side of that, which is it is really not unique at the highly selective schools that you're mentioning at Penn and the Ivies and places like MIT and Caltech. Um, National merit finalists are kind of a dime a dozen. I hate to say it, but that's the truth of the matter. Um, And I do remember when I was at Penn, we would get frantic calls of from excited students and excited parents really wanting us to know about this and please can it be added to the file and you know of course we we took the information and of course we added it to the file and it came up in committee never because all this is is about how well you did on the PSAT and Mm -hmm. um, because the highly selective schools for the most part don't really award national merit um, special scholarships it just is just not an important or big deal at that level. Again, I'm. we have done segments on this in the past. I'm not going to dig into all the ins and outs of National Merit. I will just tell you that from the perspective of um, a place like Penn, it's great. I wouldn't not tell them, but I would be realistic about how impactful that fact is going to be. Um, in terms of the best way to notify schools, we did a whole show on December 23rd seventh about notifying colleges, um, updates, things that have happened since you have applied. Um, and I would highly recommend going and listening to that. But if the college has a portal, um, oftentimes there are places in the portal to update the school with information, um, an email to the admissions officer, if there isn't a portal, can be a good way to let them know. Um, I would try to keep these types of updates, though, to a minimum. Uh, you don't want to be constantly getting in touch every day or two with a new piece of information that's come in, um, even if you're lucky enough to have new accolades pouring in at that speed um, and thank you again to everyone who submitted questions please do submit questions to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com we love to get them and we love to answer them Kathy thank you so much for being here today um, next week Sally is hosting she is going to be talking about D3 athletics and admissions um, we're going to be talking about how to compare financial aid and merit award letters and in office hours, it's already time to start thinking about planning for summer, if you could possibly <laughs> believe it. Um, so visit our archives. Um, go to our blog, blog.getintocollege.com. Great information there as well. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.